Hello, we're on Hollywood Boulevard. Hello, welcome back. Thanks for joining. Greetings and salutations. Here we are, guys, back on Hollywood Boulevard. Thanks for joining. Um, so, hey, we've got some not Melrosey things to talk about. Um, what are we talking about, Doug? So, where I want to start is the big news is this contestant on Jeopardy, James Holtzhauer. And I just want to say, personally, I am a Jeopardy watcher. I am an odd Jeopardy fan in that I don't like Alex Trebek, but that's neither here nor there right now. Um, James has been winning and winning and winning, and I'm not here for it. I don't like him. Okay. Um, and I don't know how much you have seen or heard of him. We'll get to the fact that you are not a Jeopardy watcher, but the show is not fun. And part of it is the way that he is playing it, which is smart and aggressive. He's He plays it by... Uh, picking all of the the most expensive clues first, which means he's not going category by category. And because he's so good at clicking in and, and typically has memorized so many things, um, he knows all the answers. So he just sort of races through. There's never any suspense of who is anyone else going to catch up to him so that they can beat him even in Final Jeopardy. Um, but the other thing is this guy is both the, – he's the wrong kind of arrogant because he's cocky and awkward at the same time. So he's not even fun to watch. Okay, so here's my question, right? I mean, right. I've been kind of following it a little bit because it's hard to miss. Miss it's it's in the, all the headlines. Um, how much money has he won at this point? It's like two and a half million or something okay. in about three days. How does he keep winning? Like, this is what I can't figure out. Like, why does he keep winning? So, I guess it is as he goes across. So. He'll ask all the he'll request all of the two thousand dollar questions first and go across, or the four thousand dollars in Final Jeopardy, and he's always quicker than the other people on with the buzzer, and he typically knows them, and he's getting all of the daily doubles, he's hitting all of the daily doubles with very few exceptions, and he's getting all of them, and he's always doing true daily doubles, so he's just amassing wins. Rapidly, like uh, question by question, rapidly. I have another question. Do you okay. think we have another quiz show situation going on here? Because I mean, I think yeah. it's weird that he knows everything. Uh, I mean, I think it's possible. It's anomalous, but it's possible that I think he is like a savant in some way. Okay, but I think I think he's very good at doing things that are rote. So he was probably always a good test taker. Um, I think he's good at memorizing all sorts of arcana. But your question is interesting about the, the quiz show scandal. Do I think eventually the show will tell him to screw up when people are finally tired of him and there is James fatigue? That I think will happen. I think it will never be that someone else beats him. I think they will get to a point where he stumbles and that's what gets him out and i don't think it will be true i think it will be a staged thing just to because they're like okay enough is enough we have to we have to move along and have a new contestant because we think our viewers are tired of this that is what i predict okay see i'm coming okay so i'm looking at this whole jeopardy thing number one as an anti-fan i hate jeopardy um number two I'm 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 being really cynical about this. So like I'm going to get a lot of thumbs down and booze and 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 the devil going to come take my soul, okay, when I say this. 
but when this guy started being the winniest guy and like getting a lot of like headlines, okay. All I felt like all of this stuff sort of seemed to happen rapidly with Jeopardy. Um, Alex Trebek has cancer, right? Yeah, I'm not sure that there's a. a now we've got the winniest guy coming up yeah. and and grabbing headlines again for Jeopardy. Now after these headlines, now we're getting a little bit of jam of fatigue with this guy. I think in the headlines because he's surpassed two million. Last time I heard about him was when we hit one million. Um, well, now Alex Trebek has miraculously. Uh, you know, it looks like he's actually curing, like his, his somehow, aggressive somehow cancer his is being cured. Aggressive stage four cancer seems to be in remission or something. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sort of like looking at all of these headlines like, that are coming one on top of the other, just about, and I'm going, hmm, this is unusual. Yeah. The conspiracy theorist in me can see all of that. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that I really think that is all happening because in a sense, like it's just Jeopardy, but I don't put anything past anybody. So could be right. But I want to step back. I want to hear more, and I may disagree uh, about why you have this uh, intense-sounding hatred for Jeopardy. It's the show makes me feel stupid. Oh, but shouldn't. I know. It's just that. Okay. <sighs> Grab your Kleenex, listeners. This is going to be a sad story. Oh, oh no. I pulled the ripcord, but please continue. Yeah. Okay. Hold my hand. Here's, here we go. When Je- I guess Jeopardy, when did Jeopardy come out? 19? Like early 80s, early I think. Early 80s, right. Okay. So as some may or may not know, I have a, I have a sibling and um, we don't speak. Um, and, and the sibling um, is incredibly intelligent, like brilliant. So when Jeopardy came out, um, we would, we would be like my grandma, my grandma always watched like Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. Right. And so that's where we first watched Jeopardy and my sister could get every fucking answer. And I mean, like she was like eight. Right. And she knew every fucking answer. Right. And I was like the dumb one who was just like, I have no idea. You know, although sometimes I would like hit the pop culture ones, you know, cause I was oh, yeah. nerdy yeah. back then, no, you know, like yeah. those are like the only ones that I can answer. Um, so I, so, and she's like hitting every, every, like she's, she's like James, like she just gets all the answers right. And so I always felt like an idiot, you know, I mean, it was the same thing with Trivial Pursuit, you know, because my mind doesn't oh, retain that sort of minutia. Like it just doesn't. Um, I, I can't, I can't hold on to it. I have other things that need to be like live there. My brain doesn't hold on to it. I'm, I don't memorize very well. It's part, part of the reason why I was terrible at languages. Mm, okay. Um, so I, I don't have a brain that works that way. And like, anyway, so I was always like basically being humiliated at seven thirty every night because I could not answer a Jeopardy question and my sister got them all. And it was like, it was just, you know, when you're already like, a, we're a year apart, I'm younger, she got straight A's, I was the fuck up. I mean, I got in trouble, like, I'll never forget this in third grade, my report card was like sent home, and it, I had like all C's, and my teacher was like, you know, wrote in like little notes, like, Karen has a tendency to daydream, and I got in so much trouble for that. 
I got in so much trouble. And I was like, and I was like, but I just like, like to like be where I like, I was a creative kid, you know? So, so that's where I went, you know? Um, so, so it was just, it just was like this sort of like, it came about at this awful time, um, for me sort of like being the stupid, the stupid little sister, you know, anyway, it just brings up all of that. And I just feel like I, I don't see anything clever or interesting about it. And the only time I would watch it would be like when they did celebrity jeopardy. Cause that was always fun to see your celebrities on it. Um, so it just always made me feel like an idiot. It still does. It still uh-huh. does. It shouldn't. And I'll tell you why, because whatever writers they have on board have created some of the simplest questions that show has ever seen these days. And I can't answer them. So I don't, that doesn't could. make me feel better. I'll, I think you probably could, but I'm not telling you to start watching the show. I think there's too much baggage to bring. There's so, so much baggage. Um, yeah, but I, I, I don't really have a thesis here. I'm just saying I don't like James. I don't think it's fun to watch him. I don't think it's fun to watch the show. And I really feel bad for some of these other legitimately smart contestants that are just up against this behemoth of a competitor. But yeah, do I, I think the only way to stop this reign of terror, if you will, is for, he will sabotage himself, whether it's by a, 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 a fluke or the show's mandate. That's what I think. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, you do realize that whoever beats him, it's going to be a giant upset, and that's going to drive more ratings and more and headlines. that's the thing. That's, uh, you know, everybody loves a winner until everyone tires of the winner and wants the new thing. Right. Uh, but, like, I was in for Ken Jennings back in the early 2000s when he was breaking records and winning um, all the time because there was something very sweet and, in a sense, humble about him, and there's none of that with uh, James. Right. So do you agree or disagree, listeners? Do let us know because I'm, I'm curious. Are you, are you in for the long haul with James or have you also tired of him? Uh, let us know. We want to know. So, uh, Doug, what else is happening? Well, I have something nice to say about something I've seen recently. I'm oh, so happy. Hi. I'm making jazz hands now that no one can see. Um, I saw a good movie that I really liked. What was it? Rocket Man, the biopic about Elton John. Was that a good movie? It was a really good movie. But I'll ask at the beginning, are you an Elton John fan at all? Not really. I don't think you have to be. But um, this to me is everything that Bohemian Rhapsody was not. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is the director of this, Dexter Fletcher, is the one who came in to finish up Bohemian Rhapsody. So I think you can see that if he'd been able to build Bohemian Rhapsody with a different writer and team uh that might have perhaps been a different and dare i say better movie but but rocket man really does if you will fly and the main reason is the leading actor who plays elton john or reginald dwight i should say taron edgerton who was in the kingsman movies and i didn't see those and he was in eddie the eagle which is an underrated gem that he and hugh jackman are very good in um he's wonderful this is a star part uh, uh, uh he's just absolutely charismatic and winning um it's a star performance um he's really great and this movie is written by lee hall who wrote the movie and then the stage adaptation of billy elliott and the way this film is structured it's very much a broadway musical in just waiting to take place the way that it is done so it's 
we have the cast members singing the Elton John songs, and they're not always chronological in terms of when the songs were released. They have different characters sometimes singing songs. The structure is that we meet Elton in the 1980s in a rehab meeting where he acknowledges that he's got multiple different addictions that he needs to seek treatment for, and that that moment is a jumping off point for a series of flashbacks that may or may not be entirely accurate. They, they, because they are coming from his perspective. So we do then revisit his childhood and we see his career as it builds from the beginning. Um, but the way it is, we have characters coming in and we have group numbers. This is the, the entire structure is exactly the way you stage a jukebox Broadway musical these days, whether it's, you know, the Share Show or Jersey Boys or the Carol King musical Beautiful, whatever whatever you want. To a T, it is the blueprint for a stage musical, but it still works on screen. Huh. I wonder uh, if they did that on purpose. Um they either did it on purpose or it's the only thing that Lee Hall knows how to do as a as a writer. Mm. Um but but it does work and the movie rarely sags. I mean it's pretty tightly constructed. It doesn't go throughout in John's whole life, but it does go through the point of him reclaiming his sobriety towards the late eighties and having um uh, I don't know if comeback is the right word, but embracing a, a sort of clean celebratory sort of life. And um all of the actors in it are great. Jamie Bell, who was Billy Elliot twenty years ago. Uh, is Bernie Taupin, who was Elton John's long-term writing partner. Um, and they, you know, they really show what a true prodigy and genius Elton John was, the way mm. he was able to to just write music off the top of his head or see lyrics that Taupin wrote and immediately marry it to music. Um, Richard Madden, we spoke about recently on Game of Thrones, uh, is John Reed, a character who also does appear in Bohemian Rhapsody um, as... Uh, Elton John's kind of abusive manager, boyfriend mm-hmm. manager. Um, the actors are great. Dallas Howard as his mother uh, is also very good and very believable. Um, the one... Wait, wait, wait. Bryce Dallas Howard is playing Elton John's mom? Yes. How old is she? About that. <laughs> well, it's starting when he's a young kid. I know, but uh, I mean, oh, like, like 10? Young? Like, like five young oh okay like i was like now she does appear as elton john ages so they do some light makeup stuff but the majority of stuff that we see her doing is when elton is like a five to 18 year old uh, okay uh, okay uh, all right she reappears a couple times and what i was going to say is that's kind of one of the few saggy parts of the film where they don't know whether they want to portray both of his parents as being monsters it's not or uh, you know like they make it look eventually like the mother is just living high off the hog off of Elton John's earnings. And they make it look like his biological father, even when Elton John was a major star, really wanted nothing to do with him. And that that longing for a father figure is, is one of Elton John's big demons. I think that may be a little too simplistic, both of those threads, but they work for the movie. Okay. Um and, you know, the orchestrations for these songs that Taron Edgerton specifically sings extraordinarily well. He's got the swagger. He's got the, you know, he's got all of the, the, the nagging part of the demons. Um, I mean, this is a full throttle performance that he's great. And, and all of the sequences are great. Uh, I think the songs perfect, personally sound terrific. Um, if Bohemian Rhapsody hadn't been released last year, then I think this would be 
maybe like the first big um, musical biopic to kind of take the awards by storm in a long time. I think it may suffer from the fact that, well, we just did that for Freddie Mercury last year, but this is definitely a performance to remember. And awards are not, I do think, Taryn's uh, stock as a movie star is is going to continue to climb. So, so good on him. Good on the movie. Big recommendation for Rocketman. Oh, excellent. I'm glad that you liked it. I am too. Um, so what else you got going on? Um, I can talk about some shows that I've seen for sure. Okay, cool. What you got? Can, uh, yeah, let's, let's start by going to Broadway by talking about the first Broadway show of the new season. I feel like we just talked about the end of the last one and here we are. Um, which one is this? It's a show that I actually have sort of a, uh, deep history with as a viewer, Frankie and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. That's right. Um, so the play originally ran off Broadway and moved, um, and had an even slightly more successful run in the late eighties, about 30, 31 years ago. Um, F. Murray Abraham had been in it in one incarnation. Kathy Bates had been in it, um, all during its off Broadway run. Um, and it's a show about less glamorous, kind of dowdy people. They both have histories. You know, she's been had a series of rejections and abuse, and he is um, a recent, uh, recently released from prison for forgery. Um, it's a show, kind of a gritty look about people just trying to connect. Right. I then knew it from a film adaptation that was derided at the time because they made it a star vehicle for Michelle Pfeiffer and Al Pacino. I loved that movie. Thank you so much for saying that. I love that movie. Time favorite movies. And it's how I discovered Terrence McNally. I think this is a beautiful movie and it works in a sense because they expand it. They increase the cast. Um, so we see the, is, she is a waitress and he is a short order cook. And we see them at the Greek restaurant. And that is we're... magical in that diner. I love those diner scenes. So glad to hear you say that. I yeah. loved yeah. Michelle yeah. Pfeiffer walking down the street and like writing down, like it was like such a New York movie too. Sure is. R- like looking in the, in the electronics store and writing down the prices for the TVs in a notebook. Remember that? Those little yeah. moments. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, and I think she lived in Hell's Kitchen, and which is like where I wanted to move when I moved to New York, and I did. Um, yeah, it was just, it, it was, it was such a great movie, and I know everyone was like, "Oh, but she's too pretty to be, you know, uh, she's too pretty to be Frankie," and she's, and it was just like, I don't care. She was great in it, and the movie was awesome. Yeah, and it's honestly one of the touchstones that I refer back to when you. When you look at film acting and you see someone who's either okay but not great, like the reason I know what really owning dialogue and acting effortlessly on screen is, Frankie and Johnny is that example. Like that is a perfect performance. And yes, it came under fire because they're like, this is supposed to be a dowdy woman who's kind of been knocked around by life. You can't have Michelle Pfeiffer, who is gorgeous, play that. And you know what? She played someone who had been knocked around by life. She sure did. I I cannot recommend this movie highly enough to anyone who's interested in just watching a great film with a great ensemble all around. 1991, Frankie and Johnny. I know it's always on cable. It may also be on streaming somewhere. Um, and Pacino so, is phenomenal in this. And that was right around the time he was having his own sort of comeback yep. with Godfather 3 and Glengarry and Scent of a Woman. 
Um, the two of them, the chemistry and, and the tenderness, especially between the two of them. This is Gary Marshall, the first film he did after Pretty Woman. This is one of those films that made me want to do and talk and write about all of the things that I currently do. Yeah. So I can't say enough about it. I encourage everyone to see it. And that leads us back to 2019. For the first time, this film, excuse me, this, the play has been revived and, and been done no. on Broadway. No, second time. It was oh you're right. I saw it with um I saw it done with, with on Broadway Fal- with Edie Falco and Stanley Tucci and they were wonderful. That's right, and I missed that, which is why I forgot. I'm glad to hear they were good. I remembered I remembered especially hearing good things about him. Um, so they're doing it again. You're right, but it's the first time I have seen it on stage. Okay, so it's um, Doug's first time on Broadway with me and Doug. Yeah. Um, but thank you for that clarification. Uh, yes, and it's with six-time Tony winner. Audrey McDonald, and two-time Oscar nominee, uh, Michael Shannon. Um, and I think they pretty much get it. I think they do a very fine job by it in this production. The one thing um, I would say, I think the show itself, I think some people will say, oh, it's it's not timely, it's, it's too talky, it doesn't quite work. I think the fact that the Johnny character, the male lead, um, you know, there are moments where he's really kind of pushing Frankie to open up to him physically and emotionally. And I could see in the modern conversation in a Me Too era, people not responding favorably to that. I think ultimately the show would have worked better and may have also worked better back then um, as a one act, as a 90 minute one act instead of a two and a half hour two act show. Because yeah. um, basically what happens is we see them in her apartment after they've been in bed together uh, and they start to get to know each other. And then there's some conflict and then it gets resolved. And it's kind of the same thing happens at the beginning of act two through the end of the show. It would probably work better if it was one act of them conflict building, learning more about each other, resolving once. Right. Uh, but given that material in a production um, directed by Aaron Arbus, uh, I think they do quite well by it. And I think both are very impressive. I think it's a very satisfying show. So I'm happy to give this production the first new show of the new season, High Marks. Mm-hmm. I think it runs through the end of August. So it's worth checking out if you can. If you're coming to the city at any time through the summer, it's great. But also do yourself a favor and check out the Frankie and Johnny movie. And if you've ever heard me talk about my love for Michelle, I think that you might get even greater insight uh, as to where it comes from. I think, I just think the movie is a modern masterpiece that we don't see acting like this on screen anymore because we're about style over substance. Uh, so see the movie, see the show, do the things. I mean, I also wanted to sort of bring up that, uh, to your point about the 90 minutes, like, you know, this play is from, what, the 80s? Yeah, the mid to late 80s. Mid to late 80s. I mean, Broadway was very different. Theater was very different. Experience back then, it was, everything was a three-act structure. You had the intermission. You know, running times were two hours or more. Um, You know, I... I, That was was the norm. That was the expectation. Right. So I think, I feel like McNally maybe dragged it out a little bit, maybe, and I, I do feel feel like you're right it should have been a one after 30 90 minutes but that's not how that's not how it was back then in the 70s and 80s yeah it would have been there would have been like you know revolt on broadway you know what do you mean it's not two hours with an (laughs) you know um but but yeah i'm i'm glad that um audra is and michael shannon are doing a bang up job you know i have to say it's great to see her in a non-musical role 
Yeah, I'm. it's similar to the complaint I had about Kelly O'Hara a couple months ago when we were talking about Kiss Me, Kate. For such a decorated and leading performer of her generation, the thing about Audra McDonald is she's mostly stayed in uh, roles that were not truly experimental, roles that were already well well defined and considered kind of awards baity roles in the first place. You know, she played Billie Holiday and won a Tony in a show that was already a critical favorite. Like Porgy and Bess, Raisin in the Sun, these are shows that already like had their bones made for them. They often were not contemporary. This is something that, well it's said in the eighties, is I would say modern. It is gritty, it is raw, it forces her to really dig deep and she certainly does. Yay! I love it that the first show of the season is uh, like two thumbs up from you. I uh, I do too. It's nice kind of bodes well, doesn't it? Well, I'm knocking on laptop right now that that's the case. Yes. Cool. And from you know one sort of star to another, I want to talk about another impressive turn in the new group show of Happy Talk, which is written by Jesse Eisenberg. And uh, includes among its cast Susan Sarandon, acting on stage for the first time in at least a decade. I saw her once on Broadway in Exit the King in like 2009, I think, opposite Jeffrey Rush. And she was fine. I have to say, I was a big fan of this show. Really? Yeah. And um, it's more so maybe than I uh, thought I would be going in. But it's about a woman in... Um, in New Jersey, she has uh, an ailing mother who we never see and also has uh, a caretaker who is a woman from a foreign country played by Marin Ireland, an undocumented worker. Uh, in addition, she also has a sick husband who we do meet. And her big thing is how she is consumed by herself. She is in a production of South Pacific, a community theater production, and that's where the play gets its title from. Um, She waxes on and on about the show and what it is to be a part of the cast. And there are clues planted that uh, there may be something going on with her that she's not as magnanimous as she may seem, though she does try and set up uh, her the undocumented worker with uh, a gay co-star of hers so that they can have a mutually beneficial um, marriage that will serve both of them. She seems like she's a do-gooder. Maybe a little bit, you know, like on, you know, putting on airs, but not necessarily anything too nefarious or, or worse than we see with other people. Um, And eventually we get to meet, her daughter from whom she is estranged and we get to sort of see her in a different light. And then we question, wait, what is happening in this family? Does it have to do more with problems with the daughter or problems with the mother or the parents? Um, And so it's curious because our perspective and our loyalty shifts and doesn't keep shifting. Sometimes it shifts back and forth. And I don't want to say too much more about the show, um, but I do think it's a dynamite role for Susan Sarandon, who is still kind of playing it like she played Betty Davis when she was in the show Feud. Um, But the way Jesse Eisenberg has ultimately written the show, it does kind of play 
in the mold of those old 1940s and 50s melodramas that gave a lot of the female stars of that time high, like, drama to play. People mm-hmm. like Joan Crawford and Tallulah Bankhead uh, and uh, Olivia de Havilland and that sort. Um, and I think she's really good. She nails a lot, a lot of monologues. Um, and I mentioned a co-star, Marin Ireland, who is also sort of, uh, if you need histrionics, if you need gravitas, um, on stage these days, she's one of your go-to leading women. Um, and she's also, uh, very good. So there's only about two more weeks, I think, in this run. New group runs, because they are starry, tend to sell out. But if there are seats, if you're interested, it is playing at the Signature Theater. Happy Talk by Jesse Eisenberg. Well, excellent. So two for two. Yeah. Two for two and actually three for three. Three for three. I'm going to talk briefly about another show, a sort of unique experimental show that you know very well called Feral. Ooh. Yeah. Um, uh, I just think it's a charmingly experimental show um, that talks about this uh, seaside town. Um, it's created by the company is called Tortoise in a Nutshell, mm-hmm. um, from Edinburgh. Uh, they're, they're Scottish. I don't remember where they're from. Um, and, and they tell this beautifully sweet story using overhead projectors and paper puppets and, um, and, and wonderful sound work. And I, because it's about an hour show and there's much to learn, but but not a ton of story. I don't want to say too much, but it's a really beautifully done, um, like small town, uh, story about what happens with like sort of a David and Goliath thing going on and how it ultimately, um, affects the town. I'm being deliberately vague only because this is a show that I want people to see and I want people to be intrigued but not know too much about, but know that this is a really unique thing involving a a bunch of really pristine um, puppetry and projection work um, that I think is, continues to be um, sort of the cutting edge of, of new theatrical work. Um, so I want to tell everyone to see it. F-E-R-A-L, Feral, at uh, 59, East 59. And if there's any other light you want to shed on it because you're so close to the show, feel free. But I just want um, to do a, a nice tease for the show because I think this is a great addition to the theater season as well, and I want people to know about it. Well, thank you. Um, I agree. I think that um, they've. Uh, it was a, a little background. It was it was inspired. When people say puppetry, don't take your kids. Um, it's a little disturbing. It was inspired by the London riots, but it's not about the London riots. And so what they were doing was they were basically looking at what causes a total societal collapse. And so you do get to see this very charming seaside town basically fall fall apart. And they do it with in like this sort of black and white, which I thought was very clever, um, puppets, um, these little puppets, almost like little, little people, you know, those little wee people that you used to play with when you were kids, um, you know, they're like that size and like this like cardboard cutout, literally town and, and, and you're watching them do it, but you're, they have live video feed sort of like shooting and they have the director who's there actually doing like the cuts. And so you see it, what's playing out on screen so that you can see, you know, cause it's obviously in miniature. It's very smartly, cleverly done. 
um, and engrossing and engaging um, and it's and weird. shocking. I mean, you know, I, I think it always surprises me with puppets how how much emotion you can actually get across with inanimate objects when they're manipulated the right way. That's exactly right. That, that is, and that is why things like puppetry and projections are uh, inherently theatrical and can be a very expressive storytelling tool. Yeah. Certainly is here. So I really wanted to give uh, a lot of love because I think Feral is a must-see. And I just also want to do a shout-out to, oh, my God, I've just completely spaced his name, um, the, the, the Foley artist who is on stage with them, um, is just tremendous. Um, and, and I'm yes. spacing his name. Yes, I wish, um, I'm trying to remember the names. Mm. Which is shameful, but I, you know, I have a lot of names that I need to remember. <laughs> yeah, if we remember, we'll throw it back in. Yeah, the- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, hold on. Let me, let me pull that up. Cause now I feel terrible that I can't, I can't get the, get the poor guy's name. Um, Jim Harborn. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Is he the sound designer too? Uh, is he the sound designer? He's the composer, yeah. Composer, sound yeah, okay. designer, yeah. Okay, I uh, wasn't sure if that was his name, too. So, so he's doing live sound effects. Jim Harbour, yeah. I, uh, uh, the, the technical and design uh, caliber of this show is through the roof. Which is super cool, you know? Yeah. I love Foley work. I, I think that it's one of those things that people... I don't know why people don't talk more about it, because it's so complicated but so brilliant. That's why, because people don't know. Yeah, I guess. Anyway, yay, three for three! Yes, three for three. And I'll make it three and a half for for four because I do want to praise another show that I saw and give people a chance to see it if they can. A show called Something Clean, which is at the underground space at the Roundabout Theater, also off-Broadway, which is a play written by Selena Fillinger. um, And it takes a different kind of approach to uh, sex crimes in that um, we look at the parents of... uh, a son who has been convicted of some sort of sexual assault on a female classmate, uh, uh, perhaps even a college girlfriend of his. The, we're vague on the specifics of the crime, but it seems to be that the son was indeed guilty, and it's mostly about how it affects the parents and how they question it, including, like, did did they... What did they do wrong? What did they not do enough of? Um, it seems that they have become sort of social outcast by the time we meet them. And it, it, the focus mm. of the play is the mother, played by Catherine Irby, who many people might know from TV shows like uh, Law and Order Criminal Intent. Uh, and she's a wonderful, wonderful uh, theater artist as well, and someone I've always been a fan of. And she's done a lot of sort of downtown and off-off-Broadway work. Um, and she is the main reason to see the show, um, as she kind of tries to put the pieces together. I think the show itself is a little evasive and is trying to do a, too many different things and not really focusing enough on anything because this is a fraught subject and I'm not yeah. sure it fully gets its due. Um, but I also wanted to praise her co-star Christopher Livingston, uh, who plays um, uh, an employee at um, uh, a sexual abuse um, sort of hotline that that she ends up joining in an anonymous capacity uh and he's very good too so um i do recommend it uh especially for the performances so so there we go that's four shows we're talking about frankie and johnny and the claire de lune something clean happy talk and feral um 
that I would encourage anyone to see if they are looking for uh, a, a show to catch. Awesome. Wow. So there we are. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, head over to Back on the Block Pod. Tell us what you think. Um, if you've seen Frankie and Johnny the movie, did you love it? Did you hate it? Share yeah. share it with us. We want to know. Please do. We That's know. A, that is a movie I hold near and dear. And uh, if anyone does see it, uh, let us know what you think indeed. And if you didn't like it, we'll fight you. We will. We'll fight you. We will. Yeah. Yeah, what Karen said about Jeopardy, well, that's nothing compared to what she'll say about Frankie and Johnny. (laughs) So um, that's it on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, We'll be back with more Melrose on uh, next 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 week. week. That's right. So we look forward to seeing you back on the block.